0: In our passage today, we look at some other ways that the Corinthians were failing to live up to the fact that they were God's people. We'll see how Paul rebukes them and corrects them uh, in a way that actually keeps the gospel at the very heart uh, of what, uh, what he wants them to do. We're uh, looking at the area of lawsuits, look at the area of sexual immorality, uh, and look at a whole number of areas, very briefly, in between. In the first section, which goes from verses 1 to 8, uh, Paul addresses the issue of one Christian taking another Christian to court in the secular, in the secular court. Now, now, this is not about reporting a crime or something like that, right? because Romans 13 tells us that the secular ruler is appointed by God to punish the wrongdoers. It's there, it, that's, that's what they're there for. This is about a personal dispute. Uh, in the words of verse 1, it's a grievance or a case that one person has against another. And this this instance, the dispute is probably financial, because Paul is later going to speak about being cheated or defrauded. And so it seems that there is one person in the church, or at least one, who is taking someone else in the church to the Roman provincial court about a financial matter. Now, when you look at that, it doesn't seem so bad at first, does it? But for Paul, this is, this is shocking and disgraceful. Look, look how he, 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 he writes about it. Verse 1, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Does he dare go to the secular courts? This is unthinkable. Now, we don't get that same sense of astonishment and outrage that that, that poor has usually when we think about things like this, do we? I mean, we've read this before, so you know, yeah, yeah, no, shouldn't sue your brothers and sisters in court, but uh, it doesn't seem like great moral calamity if someone does. You might just think, oh, yeah, okay, I don't really agree with it, but it's up to Himmler. But the Holy Spirit, speaking through the apostle, sees it very differently. So we need to change our mindset to follow his, don't we? For once again, Paul doesn't just scold the man who did it, he scolds the church community which allowed this to happen. Because as you read the next few verses, the word you there is actually in the plural in the Greek. In other words, he's talking to everyone. Not just a man who sued his Christian brother. Because the church in Corinth, as we saw last week, were not living up to what they were. They are so caught up in the here and now that they're not thinking about their destiny. They're not thinking about God's promises. They're not thinking about the future reality. They're not letting the future that God had planned for them affect how they function in the world. Now they were just acting like the world. And they weren't holding each other accountable for acting in light of the future. For you see the future for them is that they as saints, that is as God's holy people, were going to be God's agents in judging the world. Look at verse 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Now, this case must have been very important for the people involved. But Paul says, get some perspective. Compared to judging the world, this is, this is trivial. And you know what? You're going to be part of the team that Jesus used to judge the world. In fact, not just judging human beings, you're going to judge spiritual beings. Verse 3. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? If you're going to judge men and angels, don't tell me you can't handle these little things. Furthermore, if you are the judges of the world and of angels, why are you taking your disputes to people who are not? Verse 4. If you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Imagine if two Supreme Court judges had a dispute among themselves, and they went to the prisoner and called out one of the prisoners and helped them sort it out. Silly idea, isn't it? Or imagine two specialists, two medical specialists, having an argument about the best treatment for a patient, and so they go to the BOMO and ask him to decide. It's, it doesn't make sense. It, it, it would bring their profession into disrepute. And when God's holy people, who will judge the earth, have to go outside the church to, to resolve a dispute, that discredits them and dishonors him. This is verse 5 to their shame. Shame, shame, shame. Surely someone in the church can sort it out. Surely someone can apply the wisdom of the cross into their situation and help the brothers work it out in light of what God has done for them in Christ. Can it be, verse 5, that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and all that before unbelievers. Now unbelievers might have great expertise uh, in, in, in uh, in making court decisions, there's no doubt about that. But Jesus gave us a pattern for settling disputes, didn't he? First go to your brother, and if that doesn't work then take a couple of people with you. And if that doesn't work, then involve the church. The civil courts don't come into it. The civil courts may be very competent in what they do, but they can't handle it because they don't operate from a gospel perspective. For them, it's financial. They're not going to insist on reconciliation in relationship in the church. They're not going to ask you to forgive your brother if he repents and restore him in the church. They're not going to give you the motivation that comes from the, what God has done on the cross for you. That's not their concern. They're going to come with it at a different angle. On the other hand, it's, that might be convenient if you're more concerned about your case than your relationship with your brother. It might be more convenient if you think that by going to court you'll get a better chance of getting compensation than taking it to the church. Because the courts have got the power to enforce what they say. But by suing your brother you have you've lost something much bigger. You've lost a moral battle. Verse seven says To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? It's better to suffer being cheated than to sue your brother. It's better to be wrong than to do wrong. The world can't understand that because because they don't have the mind of Christ. They don't see everything through the lens of the Gospel. From a worldly perspective, that's stupid. Stand up for your rights. But for those who are spiritual, there are things that are far more important than our rights. One of those things is relationship with our brothers and sisters in church. Another of those things is the glory of God. And those who are spiritual don't mind losing out on what is rightfully theirs for the sake of God's glory and for the sake of relationship with their brothers and sisters. For they follow the one who gave up what was rightly his to glorify his father and to reconcile undeserving sinners to himself. On the other hand, God assures us that justice will be done in the end. He's the judge of the world. If the other brother is a cheat, well, he won't get away with it either. It's okay to suffer being defrauded, but... But it's not okay to be on the other side of that. It's not okay to defraud others. In fact, Paul is horrified when he speaks to the guilty Christians in verse 8 and says, But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Now that's terrible, isn't it? There are people in the church cheating each other. Can you believe that? Happening in the early church in Corinth. So last week sexual immorality was happening in the early church in Corinth. Paul warns them, the Spirit warns us. There might well be cheats and robbers in the church, but people who persist in this wicked behavior will not be in the kingdom. And as Paul says this, he gives a whole list of people whose behavior shows they're excluded from the kingdom. It starts in verse 9 with the sexually immoral. We'll just look more about this in a a moment. And it ends, at the end of verse 10, with the swindlers, people who cheat, who rob, who extort money from others. This verses 9 to 10 might well be a a quote from a list or a catalog of sinful behaviors that, that uh, the Corinthians were familiar with. Maybe Paul even taught them that. Verse 9 he reminds them, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Let me have a look at that list more closely. The sexually immoral are those who practice sex outside of marriage, including sex before marriage. The old translations have the word fornicators. Idolaters are those who are involved in the worship of idols. Paul will talk about this later on in the letter. Adulterers, as we know, are those who are unfaithful to their marriage vows; They have sex with someone else. And there are actually two words behind the phrase in our translation, men who practice homosexuality. One refers to the passive partner and one the active partner in the homosexual act. Thieves take what doesn't rightly belong to them. The greedy are addicted to accumulating more and more wealth or possessions by whatever means for their own sense of security. Drunkards get drunk a lot. And revilers are those who keep keeping verbal abuse on other people. This list is obviously not exhaustive. But it is a warning. If you persist in a sinful lifestyle, it shows that you don't belong in the Kingdom. That you will not inherit the Kingdom of God. I wonder if there's anyone in our church who needs to hear this warning. don't know of anyone in particular, but if it's you, don't think you can get away with all these things because you say, I believe in Jesus. Persistent, unrepented sin is evidence that you are not trusting in Jesus. And the unrighteous will not enter the kingdom. Now that is not to say that no one who has ever committed sexual immorality or idolatry or gotten drunk or stolen something will be in heaven. Uh, Paul is talking about unrepented lifestyle orientation here. He's not talking about people who fall into sin and then repent and then turn back to God. He's talking about people who persist in sin. Uh, Augustine of Hippo, often known as St. Augustine, was, was someone like that. Before his conversion he used to pray, Lord grant me chastity and continence, but not yet. And many of the Corinthians were like that too before their conversion. Paul says in verse 11, And such were some of you. Such were some of you. And for some of us here, that's what we were like before we came to Christ, wasn't it? That before God rescued us, before the Spirit worked in our hearts, we were living lives of blatant sinfulness. Now, all of us were sinful really in the heart, but some of us, it's particularly obvious. We were dirty, unholy, guilty. But Paul says, you were washed. Verse 11. You were washed. The blood of Jesus has washed away our sins. All the filth is gone. You were sanctified. That is, God has set you apart from the rest of the world. Made you holy. You were justified. That is, God declared you not guilty in the courtroom of heaven. He said, you are considered sinless. The sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, passive homosexual partners, active homosexual partners, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, are now washed clean, are now holy, are now considered sinless. How? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Isn't that amazing? Paul says to them, you were unrighteous, but now you have been washed and sanctified and justified. That's not you anymore. You are God's holy people. You may struggle with sin, but you won't live a life that's characterized by it because that's not what you are. It's what you were, but that's not what you are. And because that's not what you are, you don't live that way anymore. Unless, of course, you're a fraud. Now the Corinthians, at that point, may have had a comeback. Hang on, Paul, they might say, if we are now clean, we've been washed. If we are now holy, set apart by God. If we are now justified, God has declared us not guilty. And that is by grace, not by works. It's all done because of Christ's work on the cross, applied to our hearts by the Spirit. Well, that is it's okay what we do, isn't it? I mean, we're not under the law as a means of getting right with God. So, aren't I free to do anything? In fact, you yourself have taught us that that we are not directly under the law of Moses anymore. If my salvation comes from Christ and not from me, if Christ has fulfilled the law on my behalf, it's irrelevant to me now. And if that's the case, how can you say the unrighteous will not enter the kingdom? I am righteous in Christ. So, nothing I do actually matters. I can do anything and it won't make a difference. All things, verse 12, are lawful for me. Well, Paul responds to his imaginary debater. Verse 12, he says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Helpful means beneficial for building up the body of Christ. Helpful means beneficial for bringing glory to God. Not everything is helpful. Now, when we say helpful, we think, oh, generally good but optional. This is not what helpful is here. Because for the Christian, for the one who is washed and justified and sanctified, seeking the glory of God and the good of his people is even more important than keeping the law was for the Jew. The Jew was motivated to do it from the outside. We have the power to do it from the inside because of the Spirit. The Jew was obeying the law in order to be saved. We seek to do what is helpful because we are. Everything we do is for the glory of God. And if it isn't, then we shouldn't do it. Even if we're not under the law of Moses. Because we are under the law of Christ. Which means we are obeying the gospel from the heart. All things are lawful for me, but not everything's helpful. All things are lawful, Paul continues, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Christ has set me free from the law, but he set me free to serve him, not sin. If I use my freedom from the law to sin, I'm just going back into slavery. Paul says, no, no, no. I belong to Jesus. I will not be controlled by anything except Christ himself. Just because we're not under the law of Moses, that doesn't give us a license to sin can't play that lawful card to justify sinful behavior. Well, Paul's opponents might go another way, try a different way. Under the law of Moses, there were various rules about clean and unclean foods. What you can eat, what you can't eat. And Paul, following Jesus, had taught them that now all foods are clean. He told them food in and of itself couldn't harm them, and now... Well, Paul's opponents might be trying to draw a parallel between that and, and, and sexual behaviour. He might start by using the words of verse 13, uh, where, it's, where he says, Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Probably the inverted commas can go at the end of the word other, rather than where it is. There's no inverted commas in the original. Right? You've got to work out where to put them. In other words, both food and the digestive system are for each other. What's food for? Food's is to put in the stomach, right? Was the stomach for? Stomachs to take food. And they're both temporary. God's going to destroy them both in the end, so it doesn't really matter what food you eat. Eat whatever you like. They'll all be gone in the end anyway. Just food for the stomach, stomach for the food. Use them while you got them both. Now, this argument actually, by Paul's opponent, is a little bit flawed, but the answer he gets is right in the end. All foods are clean in themselves. The Old Testament law notwithstanding. Now, the problem is, the Corinthians want to extend this by analogy to sexual ethics. What is the body for? The body's for sex. What is sex for? Sex is for the body. So, it's all going to be gone in the end anyway. Just irrelevant in the end, what you do with it, who you do it with, just use your body for sex, whatever you like, while it's there. You see the parallel that they're trying to draw? And Paul says no, in the second half of verse 13. He says, no, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. It's, the stomach might be there for food, but the body is, is there for the Lord. That relationship, is, 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 sex in its right context can be part of serving God, but, but the body wasn't just made for sex, especially not for sexual immorality. Uh, the Corinthians' first premise is wrong. Our bodies are first and foremost created for God. Because unlike the gods of the Greek philosophers, our God is the one who made matter. Physical is important to him. His creation of matter is good. And for that reason, the second premise is wrong as well. The body is not irrelevant at the end. Our bodies have a future, and the future is seen in the resurrection, verse 14. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us by his power. More about this when we get to chapter 15. The point is that God thinks what we do in the body is important. The body is important. The physical is not the place of indifference, far from it. In fact, verse 15, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? You are part of the body of Christ. You are united with him spiritually by faith. And because you are united with him, your body, which is you, is united with him. Your physical body is considered part of his body in the world. We are members, we are parts, we are organs of the body of Christ in the world. Right? Right? Now, verse 15, if you're part of the body of Christ, if you're a member of the body of Christ, verse 15, shall I then take the members of Christ, the organs of Christ, the the cells in the body of Christ, and make them members of a prostitute? Never. That is sacrilegious. Am I really trying to be blasphemous and sacrilegious when I visit a prostitute? Because I don't mean it that way. Maybe it's, maybe it's just for fun. I'm not really thinking about Jesus at the time. Maybe it's just for work. I've got to entertain the clients. That's how we do it in our company. Maybe it's just in travel. You know, I'll never do this at home, but on holidays it doesn't count. No, 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 no. Quite apart from what you do to your wife and family, this is horrific. Even if you are single, this is terrible, 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 terrible. Why? Because when you have sex with someone, your bodies are joined together. Verse 16. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. You're you're having physical union. And that parallels the way we are joined to Christ by faith. Verse 17 says, He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. There is a spiritual union. And so you have spiritual union with Christ and, and physical reunion with the prostitute. But, but you are united in yourself. Your body and your spirit can be distinguished but not separated. So you're united with Christ, you're having sex with a prostitute, you're taking the body of Christ and joining it with a prostitute. You're taking what is holy and using it for something that is unclean. And that is unthinkable. That's why Paul says in verse 18, Flee! from sexual immorality. Run away from it. Run away. Don't go anywhere near it. Don't play with it. Don't toy with it. Don't muck around. See how close you can get to it without actually falling into it. Stupid. Sexual immorality is dangerous and it is really bad. It is sacrilegious for the Christian. It is offensive to God. Flee. The same said Augustine we talked about earlier. After his conversion, saw an old flame heading his way. And as she came to him, he began to run the other way. And she called out after him, Augustine, don't run, it's only me. And as he runs, he's calling back, yes, but I'm running because it is no longer me. Augustine knew that he was united with Christ. He could not be sexually immoral anymore. He had to get away. Flee sexual immorality, the Spirit tells us in verse 18. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, what's so bad against sinning against your own body? It's your body, right? No. Your body, verse 19, is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. Remember you saw in our Old Testament reading, how the tabernacle, the the precursor of the temple, that was holy. God dwelt there. Imagine. What would have happened if someone had been caught having illicit sex in a, in a holy place in God's temple? That's unthinkable, isn't it? A couple of Estonian tourists were caught having sex this week in a Hindu temple in Bali. They weren't popular, but they got away with a fine. Just imagine if people were caught practicing sexual immorality in the Jerusalem temple, in a holy place where God dwelt in his presence. What if people were committing blatant sin in the very place that, where they were meant to be meeting the Holy God? Would that be outrageous? You think they would have gone away with a fine? Let me tell you what is worse than using the temple for sexual immorality. It is worse when you use your body for sexual immorality. Because you are not just in the temple, you are the temple. You are the dwelling place of God, the Holy Spirit. Does what you do with your body matter? Yes, it does. Do you have the right to do whatever you like with your body? No, you don't. The world teaches this is your body, do whatever you choose. That is just wrong. Your body, the temple, belongs to Jesus. Jesus. Verse 19 continues. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. He has bought you with his precious blood. He has died to save you from sin. To make you his very own. You are his bride for all eternity. Spotless, pure, without blemish. You belong to Jesus, not yourself. You don't need the law of Moses to tell you not to be immoral. The gospel tells you that. You belong to Christ. You are the Spirit's temple. You are holy. So, glorify God in your body. He deserves it. You are His. That is the bottom line. In conclusion, friends, let's remember how this applies to us. First, let's go back to the problem about lawsuits back at the beginning. It's pretty obvious that we shouldn't sue each other, right? It's also pretty obvious that we shouldn't allow anyone else in church to sue each other. Actually, we've been getting people trained recently to, to deal with uh, conflict mediation and uh, resolution in a biblical kind of way. So, uh, that, hoping to develop that, that, that ministry here. Uh, and if that's an area of ministry that you're interested in, come and talk to me afterwards. But remember why we can't sue each other. It's because of who we are and what our future holds. It's because we are God's people who will in the end judge even the angels. And our job as God's people now is to hold each other accountable for behaving in such a way as befits those who have this future. We've got to look at who we are, look at our future, and live now in a way that befits it now. As we realize that, the applications for us widen dramatically, isn't it? Because whatever we do, whether it's making decisions about how to solve disputes, or how to run your business, or how to treat members of your family, it's all affected by who you are and what your future holds. Maybe that you've got a problem that you're trying to work out the solution to you. Try to work out how to handle an issue, whatever issue. As you, as you do that, just remember who you are in Christ. Remember the future that God has for you and always ask, is the proposed behavior, your proposed behavior, becoming of someone who has that future? As we think about the future together, is our behavior appropriate for people who have that future. But we don't just have a future. We also have a past. And we know that ourselves, we've all come from different backgrounds. There are many things in our collective past that were unrighteous and, in effect, abominable before God. There are people here who were guilty of sexual immorality. There are people here who were guilty of idolatry. There are people here who were guilty of drunkenness. There are people here who are guilty of stealing, even if it was only pirated DVDs. There are people here who are guilty of having nasty tongues that are verbally abusive or defrauding other people in business. That's what some of you were. But do not condemn yourself based on what you were like before you were saved. And Don't think about others based on what they were like before they were saved either. Because that's not who you are now. Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins. God's Spirit worked in your heart and opened your eyes to believe in him. And you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of God. You are clean, you are holy, you are not guilty before God. Your body is a member of Christ. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are not your own, you were bought with a price. So, you can't live in the old way anymore. And you don't. But if you have been slipping towards that direction, then you will hear God's word today and you will turn back to him in repentance and faith because God's spirit is at work in your heart and you know that is right. However, if you have been living in that old way, then that is a completely different matter. Because if you live a life that is characterized by the kind of unrighteousness and sin that the Holy Spirit has been warning us about today, then let me tell you, you are only fooling yourself when you think your sins don't count against you. Are you living as someone who is sexually immoral? Are you an idolater? Are you an adulterer? Do you practice homosexuality? I'm not talking about having same-sex attraction, I'm talking about committing the sexual act with a homosexual partner. Do you do with any partner apart from your husband or wife? Are you living as a thief? A greedy person? So, what pervades your life? A drunkard? A verbally abusive reviler? Swindler? Because if you are, then the evidence before you is that you haven't really been trusting in Jesus. You've called him Lord, but you haven't handed your life over to him and if that's the case, you're not saved by him. And you're in danger of going to hell. Sorry to put it so bluntly, but it's better to say now than to find out later. And so, if that is you, then let me warn you as I warned you before. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Repent, turn to Jesus, and live. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the grace and the mercy that you have shown us in the Lord Jesus. We thank you that though we were unrighteous, we have been washed, we have been sanctified, we have been justified in his name and by your Spirit. We thank you that we are your members living in this world. That we are temples of the Holy Spirit. That we are people whose future involves living in glory with you and sharing in your reign. Father, we pray that you help us and enable us to live our lives now in light of these truths. Help us to remember who we are, individually and together. Help us to keep reminding each other of who we are, because the world keeps on telling us something different. And please help us to hold each other accountable for living in a way that's consistent with who we are. We thank you for each other. We thank you that you have given us the community of your people. And we pray that not only individually, but together, we would more and more be in practice who we are in reality. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.